I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Bogus Journey Edition. It's Wednesday, September 2nd, 2020. On today's most excellent show, Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's the belated sequel to the wonderfully inane movies of the 80s and early 90s, starring Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. They return as their most egregiously non-bogus middle-aged selves, Bill and Ted. And then Chadwick Boseman has died at the age of 43. We're joined by Wesley Morris of the New York Times to discuss the legacy of a great actor and movie star lost before his time. And finally, Dana had what appears to be maybe our final comfort pick, at least for now. She chose Days of Heaven, the Terrence Malick movie from the late 1970s. It stars Richard Gere, Sam Shepard, Brooke Adams, and Linda Mance, who herself has just passed away. We will discuss. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner, who's the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Okay, before we dig in, Dana, we do have some good news. Yes, we have some very good news for us, and I hope for for our listeners too, which is that the Slate Culture Gap Fest is going weekly again with the coming of fall and the crisping of the leaves and the somewhat adjusting of the economy to our new pandemic circumstances. We can now afford to make our show every week once more. So in the grand tradition of the Slate Culture Gap Fest, you will be hearing from us every week going forward. Yay! Thank you all so much for hanging in through our... our, uh fortnightitude. And thanks, of course, to anyone who helped it happen by joining Slate Plus during this interregnum period of bi-weekliness. But this is not an excuse to slack. Keep signing up for Slate Plus. We still need you. <laughs> we definitely do. I got car payments. All right. Uh, shall we dig in? Let's. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out at the end of the 1980s, a decade not especially well known for its kindness. Played by Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter as overgrown human puppy dogs, Bill and Ted seem to promise that a fallen world might yet be saved by a pair of disarmingly naive kids from San Dimas, California. If only they could pass their history exam. That was the sort of tepid MacGuffin of the first one. To that end, they traveled through time in an enchanted phone booth, meeting Napoleon, and as they called them, Socrates and Froude, aka Socrates and Freud, the new movie returns the two actors. Bill and Ted are now middle-aged, but still living as wannabes in a world that is still fallen. They may yet save it and their marriages, but first they must write a song so beautiful it brings about the promised utopia. Let's listen to a clip. Okay. Now all we got to do is write the greatest song ever written that brings the entire world into rhythm and harmony and saves reality as we know it all through time dude we've spent our whole life trying to write the song that will unite the world what makes us think we can write it in like 75 minutes Ted we had to have written that song the people in the future told us we did yeah I guess which means we have it in us dude maybe we just haven't written it yet 
Maybe we're still gonna. Well, if we haven't written it yet, but we know we're gonna at some point, why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? And take it from ourselves! Yeah! Ted! You have had many counterintuitive ideas over the years, but this is by far the counterintuitivest of them all, dude! All right, I see our producer laughing in his Zoom window. Therefore, I am objectively correct in my opinion that the Bill and Ted universe is is a boon for the world. But Julia is about to shower down her robot cruelty upon it. Oh, my God. Well, listen, before we get there, uh, I should say the film also stars Samara Weaving and Bridget Lindy Payne as the two daughters of the respective Bill and Ted. And they have to help their hapless fathers out by assembling the world's greatest band ends up featuring Louis Armstrong, Hendrix, and Mozart, and others. But Dana, other than that, what is the very most, most excellent fact about this movie? I don't know. I think you're going to have to tell me. I'm going to give you a hint. It was directed by Dean Pariseau, who is also known for... Galaxy Quest. There we go. Yes. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> the, all, I mean, the all-time most excellent, comfortingest movie ever made, but... Anyway, Dana, go ahead, defend this. You're, uh, turns out you're a Bill and Ted completist. I did not, I would not have guessed this about you. Yes, well, truth. I mean, part of why this new Bill and Ted chapter is dear to me is that it's it's sort of part of my um, rehabilitation into the Slate universe, because during this same interregnum time that we were going bi-weekly, I was also not writing film criticism for Slate for various reasons. I mean, because of budget cuts, because of my own book deadlines, because there aren't any movies opening in theaters. Um, so this was my triumphant return, and I insisted on it when I saw this movie was coming out way at the beginning of the year, before the pandemic was even a you know, a threat on the horizon. I said, I want that movie (laughs) because, I mean, this is completely the movie of my demographic, right? I'm almost exactly the age of Keanu Reeves, maybe a couple years younger. Um, And I sort of feel like, you know, everybody's in love with Keanu now, but I'm grandfathered in there because I fell in love with Keanu in real time, not even in this movie, but several years before, I think, in River's Edge, which was the first thing I I had ever seen him in. Um, and to some degree, I think it's it's Keanu that carries this, I will agree, very slight <laughs> um, franchise. But Alex Winter is really excellent, too, and the excellent, most excellent. And the chemistry between them, <laughs> I think, is what makes these movies so fun. And it's been really great in the, in the run-up to this movie, seeing all the coverage, like the joint interview that the two of them did with uh, David's cough for, um, for The Times. And, you know, other places, I think they did a variety podcast together. And they're friends in real life, like not just guys who are friendly on a movie set, but like they take vacations together. Their families know each other. And that really shows, I think, in um, in these three movies, which really do show, you know, sort of a friendship growing through time. And ultimately, I think what I love about these movies is, as you said, Steve, just their their innocence and naivete and kindness and the fact that the catchphrase of Bill and Ted that, you know, saves reality as we know it uh, is be excellent to each other and party on dudes but I will just say that to me, these three movies occupy a very specific and and lovable niche. I have waited so long to just sit back and watch Julia Turner crap all over something <laughs> you said, Dana, all over your hopes and dreams. And I'm just going to do that right now, Julia. I, okay. I, first of all, I rewatched the original Bill and Ted, which I watched like probably in a theater when it came out. Um, or maybe on a VHS from Video to Go shortly thereafter and loved. And that movie holds up. There are a couple out-of-step gay jokes and, you know, dated bits to it, but it is completely charming. 
So I still love the first one. I'm pro Bill and Ted in general, <laughs> but I, I, this, this, this thing, this recent one is terrible. It's a terrible movie. Like it has some bits of charm in it. Um, I really think the performances by the daughters are charming. The um, way that the plot unfolds to give the daughters interesting things to do feels decade appropriate. But the whole sequence where they are gathering musicians from throughout history to play this epic song is just dreadful. Like the, the actor who plays Louis Armstrong is terrible. The kind of bone drummer is like racist and stupid. There's also no Latin in a, in a movie that seems to be taking great pains to put together a diverse set of world music. There's no Latin music greats of any kind, which is sort of embarrassing and stupid. Um, and then I also, and this is going to cut closer to the bone. I don't think Keanu is very good mm. in this movie. Yeah. I think that Alex Winter plays like a really great aged version of Bill but I think that Keanu's I don't know the way in which his like melancholy lockedness expresses itself through the like floppy dopiness of the character just seemed kind of it just wasn't very fun and I get that it's maybe not fun to have a midlife crisis but I mean Keanu is such a funny actor such a great actor and he just seemed, I don't know, stuck. It was not, it was not a super enjoyable performance It's to a me. weird performance. I don't disagree. I will say I really liked the movie. I, I wondered at the bone drummer, you know, that they retrieved from our earliest history or prehistory. I wondered whether that was, was racist. I mean, I, I understand that it was an attempt to not be racist, to say that the origin of all human civilization is from here, including obviously music, but they just handled the, I agree very poorly. So bracketing that for one second, I, I did rewatch the first one with my kids. It was a, sort of a double revelation. The first is that they just had no idea what fucking planet this movie had dropped from. I mean, the zeitgeist out of which it came, the kinds of performances, the silliness of it, the lightness of it. They don't, nothing like it exists in their universe. And I think that they were flummoxed by it completely. But the uh, other revelation is in rewatching the movie is Reeves, who's, so incredibly disarming is Ted. I mean, they're both wonderful and it's a comedic, great comedic turn by very, at the time, probably green young actors, but there's there's something extra that Keanu brings to, to Ted and it's both the puppyishness, like he can't stop sort of bouncing in the screen. He's just kind of bouncing and there's this beamingness to him and there's it's as if there's a bag full of puppies inside of him trying to get out of him. And it's infectious. I mean, there's and and since the essence of the movie is, can the p- perhaps the worst quality of Americans is that we're historical amnesiacs and we have no appreciation for the fact that civilization preceded us. But perhaps our best quality is bound up in that, which is that out of that forgetfulness comes a very simple goodwill that might possibly redeem at least us, if not maybe others as well. I mean, one hopes. And so the whole movie lacked a sour note. It was not a very knowing, it's a completely unknowing movie in some ways. It, it, it wasn't very sharply written. It wasn't satirical. It was just weirdly excellent, right? It, it sort of embodied its own theory of excellence um, 
in its naivete and simplicity. And so my question approaching this new one was, could you sharpen it and bring it into the present without also bringing in the knowingness of comedic writing today, that kind of slightly shit-eating irony with which Bill and Ted wouldn't be Bill and Ted. And I actually thought they did a pretty good job. And I thought that, Dana, I thought they kind of mined the middle-aged thing oddly well in a way. I, weirdly, the whole thing kind of worked for me, though I have a lot to say about Keanu, but more of that later. What do you think? Well, the, what you say about the writing doesn't really ring with me because I think what makes this whole trilogy in a way is the writing and the writing isn't just by the same guys, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson, all through the series, right? This isn't a writer's room being brought in by some studio. This is two guys right. who are also friends, you know, who are their own Bill and Ted in real life, um, aging along with their characters. And I think that that really is what holds the series together for me. Mm-hmm. Is that as Bill and Ted age, and we haven't talked about the middle movie, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which I think may be my favorite of the three, where they go down to, to hell together and play Twister with death, among other things. Um, but the, the second movie already starts to be a movie about how do you grow up, right? How do you how do you leave behind the, the kid in the garage in San Dimas who wants to play with Eddie Van, Van Halen but doesn't know how to play his guitar, right? And start to mature into someone who could have a marriage and children and all the things they acquire over the course of the movies. That seems quite sharp in the writing to me. I mean, really, this last movie is about underachievement, right? And what do you do yes. when you're a 50-something underachiever? They can now play their instruments really well, but they still can't write this magical song. And there are some jokes at the end about whether, you know, the song that may or may not finally emerge to save the world is really going to be all that good. And, I mean, maybe a part of, a part of me just identified, you know? I mean, I, I feel like I am Bill and Ted. I know what it is to be that person who's wondering, you know, is my moment ever going to come? Am I ever going to save the world? And that seems like where Generation X has been and always will be stuck. And maybe a part of me just felt a kind of melancholy allegiance with that. And I don't know, the, the, the special effects are endearingly bogus. There's just something about this universe that I love. Okay, but can I ask, can I tell you about something else that I find bogus? Please. Uh, so... Oh, there's so much female empowerment. They have these really cool daughters. The daughters are even more musically astute than Bill and Ted and much more Catholic in their tastes. And wow, they have such power. Um, and, you know, they sort of make as a joke, the movie opens with this wedding where Missy, the kind of high school hottie who's a couple years out of high school, who in the first movie is Bill's stepmom. And then we later learn, in fact, also became Ted's stepmom and is now marrying Ted's brother is played by the same actress who who played her in the first film um you know so we get to see this this hottie of 31 years ago as like a middle-aged bride um but do the actresses who played the hot princesses saved from the middle ages get to play bill and ted's wives no they do not they are replaced with younger models um so the original actress who played joanna is now 52 um, and is replaced with jama mace who is 41 and then Aaron Hayes, who plays the other one, is now 44. And I couldn't even find the age um, of Annette Asquey, who played the original one. Now, maybe they offered those roles to those two actresses who didn't want them. Um, but I'm going to guess no. And that's fucking fucked up. How come women don't get to have their own middle-aged ennui? Like, uh, just this, uh, this movie is not worthy of the Bill and Ted ethos. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, I agree. I think, and I thought about that watching these movies and about my own internalized sexism. I mean, I really did have a, an, an internal bogus journey of my own watching these and thinking about both of those things, the youth of the actresses who, who replaced them and the, the non-existence of those characters in both the first two movies. They're just, you know, girls that you win and then then become sort of your, your pretty bride. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd love to jump in with just one comment about the Keanu performance, which is, you know, the funny thing about Keanu is that he's, and I say this advisedly, I know that Dana Stevens may, may, may clap back on this, but he's he is as close to a non-actor as you can get in a major movie star. I mean, his, his range is tiny. He's very wooden. He's gained control over his instrument by toning it down, 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 by never trying to stretch beyond what he's capable of in some way. And it's funny to see him as this kind of stiffened, melancholic, middle-aged, near lug in a way. I mean, he just, you know, the puppy is really gone in this subsequent performance, in this in this recent performance. And I found myself going back and forth between wondering, is he consciously making it this way? This stiffened melancholic is a comment on what it's like to grow older, or is he just older? And I actually thought that that cognitive dissonance made watching it that much more affecting in a weird but he, way but 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 he's acting i mean I, I guess i i can't the small range observation i can't really refute but you could say the same thing about humphrey bogart right i mean there are so many movie stars mm-hmm. that have a right. that project themselves very powerfully and their selves is, is the commodity that we want and that you know the movie casts them right for. No, but no, but no. i would say i mean we just talked about the john wick the third john wick movie right in which keanu is an action star and he moves in a completely different way i talk about this in my review of, of the bill and point, ted three yeah. movie that he's an incredibly physical actor his his comedy is physical and you're right that you know the puppy like physicality of the first bill and ted is a huge part of its charm but he still does that puppy like walk in this movie but in a stiffened way i mean i actually have notes for my review about his walk and how much i love it that he's got you know that that bounce that the actress playing his daughter imitates so well um but of course the bounce loses its bounce when you're in your 50s to some degree but i don't think it's at all keanu trying and failing to summon the old ted no, Dana, that's totally fair. I mean, there's this kind of amazing rigor mortis that he's added to this character, and it's really, it's got a kind of existential heaviness to it. Okay, well, can I tell you one thing I really liked about this movie? Yes, please. please. It delivered Dana Stevens' movie reviewing prose unto me on Slate. <laughs> well, I had a great time reviewing it. I will say that it was a complete pleasure to just be able to dive into the universe, rewatch the first two movies, and just kind of, you know, have a think about what Bill and Ted has meant to me. All right. It's uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's streaming. I watched it on Amazon Prime. I'm sure it's various outlets, but check it out. I'd, we'd love to hear what you think of Dana Stevens adoring Bill and Ted. <laughs> so email us or, or uh, hit us up on Twitter. Okay, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, this is where we usually talk uh, business. Dana, what do we have? 
Yes, Steve, all I have to say for business is that in Slate Plus today, in keeping with our all-movie theme for this episode, we are going to talk about the future of theatrical movie screenings with uh, Sam Adams, our frequent guest and Slate senior editor, who actually went to a movie this week. He got to see a small screening of Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan movie in Philadelphia. Uh, He's going to tell us about that experience, and we'll just talk and speculate a bit about what the future of theatrical screenings may be in our age of quarantine. To hear segments like that, of course, you can sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. And while we're talking about that, we wanted to extend our very sincere thanks to anyone who has signed up for Slate Plus recently. Because of you all, we are getting to go back to a weekly schedule, which we are thrilled about. And you also help to contribute to the health of the whole magazine at a time when the whole publishing industry has really been taking a big hit. All of that to say that memberships really do make a big difference for us. And if you hadn't signed up, we would not be able to be talking to you every week. If you have not yet signed up for Slate Plus, we can still really use your support. As we have spoken about before, when you become a member, you'll get ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content, like our conversation about the future of movie screenings this week, and lots of other benefits. It's only $35 for your first year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. So again, to all of you who have signed up, we really appreciate you. Okay, for the next segment, we're joined by Wesley Morris, the Pulitzer Prize-winning critic at large for the New York Times. He's here to discuss the loss of Chadwick Boseman, the great actor, to colon cancer at the age of 43. Wesley, uh, welcome back to the show. Nice to be with you guys. I missed you. Uh, We miss you all the time. It is great to have you back. So as you point out in your really beautiful elegy to Boseman, he was Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall, and of course, Black Panther. Um, and and as you put it, had any actor spent more time in such enormous shoes in so brief a span? And you go on to make the very brilliant, very Wesley Morris point that he didn't look like the men he played, that that was somehow essential to what he was doing. Can you explain that? When he played Jackie Robinson, that was the first of these of this stretch of of his of his acting career, and he didn't really start acting in any, with any prominence until a little bit before that. I mean, Jackie playing Jackie Robinson in two thousand fourteen, I believe, was his two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. That was his first major part in a movie, and. It just was, you know, I will confess before I even finish this thought that, like, I think Jackie Robinson is one of the most handsome human beings ever born, (laughs) period. (laughs) And Chadwick Boseman is handsome in a different way. And I just thought, like, well, this just seems like strange casting. I mean, even watching the movie, you're just like, Chadwick Boseman is finding something in Jackie Robinson that has nothing to do with, with how he looks. And I think that one of the problems with the with the movie biography is that the people who make these things get so hung up on the the verisimilitude and and resemblance of of circumstances and the people playing the people the movies that are, are about. Mm-hmm. And I just found that finding different ways to play these people that didn't he had to do something to convince us he was these people because he knew he didn't look like any of them. Right. Um, and seizing upon this, you know, the electricity of James Brown, the sort of the the rectitude of Thurgood Marshall and the just cocky certitude that is also um, extremely understated in Jackie Robinson. I mean, those are three different, very, very different people. 
And the through line for each of them for me was just a kind of pride. And I don't know, it was just a, a fascinating thing to, to, to observe in one actor in like four years of an actor's career. Right. And then Marvel goes and spends hundreds of millions of dollars to make a tentpole movie kind of about black dignity, right? <laughs> and at mm-hmm. the, and they put him at the center of it and he carries it. He carries it to a billion dollar plus franchise. And you use that word dignity, but you say something quite interesting about it, which is that the problem with dignity, and I'm quoting you now, is that there's not much an actor can do with it but he he kind of did, right? I mean, he was just a tremendous actor, but also a tremendous movie star. In the world of Black Panther, the thing that Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman, it's easy to overlook him because you've got Denai Guerrera and, and Lapita Nyong'o and, and Michael B. Jordan um, doing seemingly more and having more to do, but he is the center of, of all kinds of gravity in that movie. I mean, he is he has gravitas, and he is the moral center of the film and like the vision for what whatever ideology exists in this movie. I mean, there's what Michael B. Jordan represents, obviously, and then there's what T'Challa represents and the way that um, the sort of humor, which is easy to overlook that, that Chadwick Boseman brings to that part. And it's not quite righteousness. It's, it's He's playing royalty and he plays a royal character with with a understanding of how how a certain kind of royalty would comport itself. Wesley, one thing you mentioned in your in your tribute is you you call him a kind of historian, which I think mm-hmm, kind of comports mm-hmm. with what you were saying earlier about his interpretation of those characters, you know, these these huge legendary figures he played in biopics. But as I read about his life in these few days since he so unexpectedly died, I have been thinking of him as a more cerebral kind of figure than mm-hmm. than you might have thought from, you know, the guy who, who played Black Panther, right? I mean, he the, those years that he wasn't yet making it in Hollywood, as you say, he was 35 when he played Jackie Robinson, right? Um, and it's but it's not as if he was sending in headshots in L.A. that whole time. Right, he was living right, in New York. Right. He was writing plays. He, he taught acting at uh, the Schomburg Center in Harlem, I believe. Um, that he was having this sort of life as a as a more indie, you know, alternative kind of actor and not really looking for those kind of roles at all. And then going a little bit further back into his past, when he was at Howard University, he apparently worked at an, at an African themed bookstore. Right. Mm-hmm, which which then mm-hmm. informed the way that he played T'Challa and the way that he kind of advised other actors on the set. Like, let's try to use African accents and, you know, we can't use European accents. He really had a sense of that character as a historical figure. Right. In this alternate history, the history of of the comic book superhero. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's funny because when a person dies, you, 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 you attribute qualities to them as though they're unique and they're the only people who have them. But what he, and lots of people have, lots of actors have what I'm about to say he had, but I really, really felt it with him because it's rare, which is that he didn't seem to, he didn't seem desperate ever. Right. He didn't seem to ever like have an actorly moment. Um, he only was ever serving the parts. And I think, you know, obviously playing James Brown, he, James Brown being this electric, you know, historically important figure who understood his blackness to function in a particular way, but also was incredibly contradictory um, as a human being. And I, there's something about the way Get On Up works where you 
don't feel that the actor playing the part is there's anything vain in the actor playing the part. He has tapped into this narcissism and this sort of explosive performative quality in the person he's playing. And I would contrast that with, you know, with somebody like Rami Malek in, in, in Bohemian Rhapsody who were, or I feel like I'm watching an actor give a performance as a person who might be Freddie Mercury at some point. Right. And I, the, 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 the actor keeps getting in the way of, of the person they're playing. You don't feel that with Chadwick Boseman. I mean, I don't know anything about, I didn't know anything about that man watching him play these parts, but I also didn't feel like he was using James Brown as a stepping stone for some other thing, i.e. winning an Oscar. And that kind of made the exploration of James Brown as a person more interesting to me. There is something about his performances that I've been trying to articulate to myself that just feels like it's on this distinct plane. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That it, they, they, and I think that sense that they are so deeply centered in themselves. I mean, I guess it's a cliche to say that actors disappear into parts and it's different even to disappear into parts where we have some sense of who the who the historical figure is but there was something that seemed directed from his his inner self rather Mm -hmm. than like Mm -hmm. mugging for the hypothetical audience and yet also someone who was just really supremely conscious of the impact of the roles he chose and how he chose to portray them and and I don't think it's an accident that he that his career was playing all of these legends and and greats. I mean, he seemed he seemed drawn toward it. Even T'Challa, I mean, you know, I'm not many, many people have written about like the the political alignment of Black Panther with various, you know, political leaders and 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 activist heroes. Um, but I mean, he, it wasn't like, it's easy to just think of that part as a comic book part and to, as, as Black Panther and T'Challa as, as comic book figures, but there are real world corollaries for, for that part and for that, for that man. Um, and you know, just by extension, I mean, he, in addition to playing Thurgood Marshall, <laughs> James Brown and, and Jackie Robinson, he also is basically playing Martin Luther King, or Barack Obama, or you know, something, someone along those lines who is a sort of universally respected figure. <laughs> Not even in the world of the comic books, but there's something about the power of that movie that turned Chadwick Boseman and that character into those things. I think there's also a way in which, even though his performances seem very inner he was aware of the import of his career. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You know, a friend of mine pointed me to the speech that he gave when the Black Panther cast won the SAG award for best ensemble. Oh yeah. In which he quotes Nina Simone about being young, gifted and black. (laughs) To be young, gifted and black, we all know what it's like to be told that there is not a place for you to be featured. Yet you are young, gifted and black. We know what it's like to be told to say there's not a a screen for you to be featured on, a stage for you to be featured on. We know what it's like to be the tail and not the head. We know what it's like to be beneath and not above. And that is what we went to work with every day. 
because we knew there's there's not an ounce of being self-conscious in the performances, but mm-hmm, in the selection mm-hmm. of the career, there is an incredible amount of care and craft about what his, how he's using his talent and what it's supposed to signal to whom. Um, it's just, it's just so many of our big actors, even the ones whose talent we most admire, seem so buffeted about by Hollywood. Even if they're not, even if they don't have to face the systemic racism of Hollywood, even if they're just like talented people who, you know, get a bad break and sign on with the director, it turns out, to, you know. To, to be able to author a career mm-hmm. in the way that he did mm-hmm. seems rare for any person in Hollywood, much less for a talented young black actor in Hollywood. So there's something that just feels miraculous looking back at the span of it. I wonder, like, the other two things I would, like, there, I had two thoughts in thinking about, like, what, what he, like, what his, what his career and his death were like. So career-wise, in terms of the way he approached his parts, I really think that you know his acting style is much closer to a person like Sidney Poitier than than maybe anybody. I mean, you know, we don't give Sidney Poitier enough credit for like 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 teaching a, an entire generation of people how to act in movies. Um, I mean, Brando took up a lot of space with inventing a, a screen acting. Um, but Poitier, while not entirely a method actor, was certainly, he had these expressionist qualities to him that were also deeply rooted in, like, in rectitude. And I feel like that, like, so when he explodes in a movie, I mean, it really, something really must have gone wrong for him to lose it. Um, and I feel like Chadwick Boseman had a little bit of that. And the other thing that came to mind for me, and I don't know if this happened for you guys, but I feel like this is the first celebrity death, and I could be wrong about this, at least in the movies, since since Heath Ledger, where you just felt like something really important was lost very, very soon, or too mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. Yeah, Phil, yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman maybe as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at the, even C- Philip Seymour Hoffman is different, right? Like, because there, there just was so much more work than yeah. these two, than those two Good people. Good point, yeah. Well, it's true. So, Wesley, I think, you know, you said it so beautifully right at the end of your uh, piece. I think I'll just quote it. You said, no one approximates this much greatness without a considerable reserve of greatness himself. And that just seems to sum it up. Oh, yeah, it's true. Wesley, I feel crass bringing in an, an industry question into this conversation about how about this this man who, in many ways, was sort of outside and on on the fringes of an industry, even as he was succeeding within it. But there was a huge online flap over the weekend about the question of whether Marvel would recast the role of T'Challa now that Chadwick Boseman is gone, and you know, with obviously many people saying, you know, just just leave it as it is, don't retire that hero, essentially. But looking at the fact that Black Panther was one of the highest grossing movies, I believe, of all time, uh, Mm -hmm, certainly mm -hmm. of of the Marvel Universe, it's really hard to imagine that they would just leave the prospect of future Black Panthers on the table. So I wonder how you personally feel about that and also just what you think industry-wise will happen. I mean, can't they just make Daniel Kaluuya, like, take over? I mean, Black Panther is, anybody can play that. It's T'Challa that's the concern, right? Like, somebody else is going to be T'Challa. You know, Lupita Nyong'o could be Black Panther. You guys, it's hiding in plain sight. He dies in the movie, and then Shuri becomes Black Panther. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah. She takes on the mantle, then it's like a woman thing, too. Yeah. I mean, I think that solution is very, very simple. They can spend the first hour of the movie honoring him, 
in like a very elaborate sort of morning ritual or something. And then, you know, the plot kicks in and exactly Julia Shuri is, is, is Black Panther. Mm, all right. Well, we settled it here. I hope we all get our, you know, appropriate to on the story by credit, but um, <laughs> that's definitely yeah, how that good works. luck with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my lawyer's on it right away. Um, but uh, Wesley, as always, it's just a complete pleasure to have you on the um, show on the way to your second Pulitzer Prize. Oh, thank you, Stephen. It's nice to see you guys or talk to you guys. I can't. I mean, I could see you briefly, but now we're just uh, talking. Always a pleasure. All right, All hang right. in there, man. Talk to you guys later. Bye, Wesley. Bye, Wesley. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Terrence Malick's 1978 film Days of Heaven unfolds with the simplicity of a fable or maybe even a biblical tale. It tells the story of a young couple played by Richard Gere and Brooke Adams, who arrive as itinerant farm workers on a magnificent agricultural estate in the Texas panhandle. Uh, To make their lives easier, they told people that they're brother and sister, they're lovers, and they have a young girl with them who's Gere's character's younger sister. This all takes place early on in the 20th century, just at the dawn of mechanization. There are automobiles and tractors, but they are a novel part of the landscape. The work that they have to do on this farm is pitilessly hard. And when the master of the house played by Sam Shepard falls for Brooke Adams, the Brooke Adams character, Gears character hatches a scheme. I think you can probably guess what it is. What follows is a richly ambiguous love triangle. The movie was Malick's second after the masterful Badlands. Let's listen to a clip. And maybe to set up this clip, we should say that the voice you're going to hear is Linda Manz's voice. She, Her voiceover, as we'll talk about, provides most of the the sound that you hear during the movie, along with the the musical soundtrack. So this is her character, who's also named Linda, uh, ruminating during the course of their their trip from Chicago down to Texas. I met this guy named Ding Dong. He told me the whole earth is going up in flames. Flames will come out of here and then. They'll just rise up. The mountains are going to go up in big flames. The water's going to rise in flames. There's going to be creatures running every which way. Some of them burnt, half their wings burning. People are going to be screaming and hollering for help. See, the people that have been good, they're going to go to heaven and escape all that fire. Shocker! I need shocker! But if you've been bad, God don't even hear you. He don't even hear you talking. Well, Dana, you picked it. I'd love to hear why. I mean, I knew that we were going weekly. I knew that our uh, quarantine comfort movie series was going to come, not to an end, but I think we're going to take it maybe once a month or something. And I wanted to pick, I don't know, I just wanted to go out with a bang and talk about a movie that has meant something to me 
really, as long as I can remember, I can't remember when I first saw this movie, uh, but that I've never gotten a chance to, to write or, or talk about anywhere professionally. Um, this came out in 1978. It was Terrence Malick's second movie. His first was, was Badlands, which is widely regarded, I think, as one of the great sort of first movies, one of the great uh, directing debuts of all time. And it, but that was already six years before Badlands was. And, uh, and after this movie, he would not make another movie for 20 years. His next movie after this was The Thin Red Line in 1998. So to me, growing up watching this movie, and again, I don't remember when I first saw it, but it would have been somewhere in my adolescence, like just as I was becoming a cinephile, basically. I'm sure it was on the big screen uh, because that's just that would have been the only place to see it probably in those days. And uh, and Terrence Malick at the time was shrouded in this kind of mystery, this guy who had made two incredible movies and then essentially become a recluse. And it was not known whether he would ever make one again. Um then after Thin Red Line in 1998, he started to become somewhat prolific by his standards and has made a bunch of movies in recent years, which that's going down another whole path. I and mean, we've talked about Tree of Life on this show, uh, which has its defenders and its detractors and is a strange, more of a shaggy mess, but I think a beautiful shaggy mess. This movie is the opposite of a shaggy mess, uh, even though the history of its making is, which is extremely interesting to read about, was a huge, big, shaggy process that Steve could easily have become a Heaven's Gate kind of situation. Malik went yeah. way over time. He went way over budget. You know, various um, members of the crew had to leave because he was taking so long to finish. It was actually shot almost completely by the legendary cinematographer Nestor Almendros, who had worked with Romer and Truffaut and European directors before this. It was his first Hollywood movie. But he had to leave before it was over. And then Haskell Wexler, another legendary cinematographer, came in and finished the movie. Um, there were all kinds of stories like that behind the scenes. You know, the producers being furious that Malik was taking so long. He was keeping helicopters waiting, you know, while he tried to get a perfect shot of a locust on a stalk of grain or something. And, uh, and in that process, which extended to the post-production period where, you know, he edited it for years and it was like it was never going to come out. And he actually decided to scrap huge amounts of the dialogue that had been recorded and bring in that Linda Mann's voiceover that we heard in the clip to be almost the entire, you know, machine that narrates the movie. But given all of that, it somehow coheres into this perfect gem-like thing, right? I mean, there's not a single frame of this film that I would change there's not any performance or, or, or image that doesn't seem to just somehow be magically right. And to me, knowing some of that history behind it makes that even more amazing because Malik has this very lyrical, contemplative filmmaking style that seems like it would, it would be a disaster on screen and that has at times been a disaster on screen in subsequent years, but that just achieved that kind of gem-like perfection this one time. Mm. Julia, had you seen it before? No, I never saw it. And I loved it. If you're going to make a lyrical, nearly dialogueless film, make it 90 minutes and make it great. That's my that's my takeaway from this movie. Like it it um, the the combination of feeling open, curious, expansive in a kind of American pioneery way um, and feeling unorthodox in its storytelling with being an incredibly compact and considered story that actually has a lot of kind of action and plot in it is so striking and, and really satisfying. Um, also just the faces in it are incredible. I, I don't know. I haven't tracked Brooke Adams's 
career particularly, but the set of her mouth, she mm-hmm. has this amazing, like lush frown is the set of her face. Um, and sort of watching her act, you know, the Linda Mann's performance is also extraordinary. Um, and the movie's also just heartbreaking, like the conclusion of it, which I don't think we should spoil here, even though it's a 40 odd year old movie. Um, I was blown away. This this is a great, a great, great film that I'm so glad to have watched. Yeah, it's my second time around. I saw it in the movie. I thought I saw it in the theater on a revival in the 90s, I think. And, and I liked it then. I loved it this time. Something about it really, really got to me this time. I think I went in with too much hype. I think Malick hadn't made the third film yet. So there was this Salinger-esque shroud of, you know, mystery around around him as the as the Hollywood exile. And uh, it's also, it has a reputation of being the most beautiful cinematographically, you know, beautiful movie maybe an American director has ever made. I think it, it lives up to that. It is that beautiful. I found its beauty overburdened the film the first time I saw it, but this time I understood it so much better that exactly as Julia says, there's this story of compactness, of elemental simplicity at the center of it that does have the force of a, a fable but for all of that simplicity, it, it, it actually is quite richly ambiguous as well because neither man really knows if he's in a love triangle. Like once you get into the plot of the movie and she's, I don't think it gives anything away to say, she's entrapped within what is supposed to be a sham marriage. You know, just as Sam Shepard is beginning to suspect it might be a sham marriage, Richard Gere is beginning to suspect it might have turned into a real one. And he may have outthought himself as a would-be con man and is going to lose the love of his life to this rich person. And at that mo- at that moment, all of the significance of the movie rests, as you say, Julia, on this remarkable face, you know, and remarkable performance by a great actress. It's not just that she looks extraordinary, but it's, you know, it's it's really a great performance by by Brooke Adams. And and it's true, the lush frown is what a wonderful phrase. You know, uh, Florence Pugh often performs with a lush frown as well. It's oh, that's not a good, a, that's a good echo, yeah. Nice comp, right? I mean, it just doesn't, it's not, it's not a very common thing to see in movies and they both pull, pull it, you know, pull it off really beautifully. Um, the one thing I will say is that for an itinerant farm worker, Gear has a closet full of really beautiful crepe <laughs> outerwear <laughs> and, and a really great haircut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I I love also what this movie is doing just with the idea of the West, like the the scene when Gear finally gets inside the house. So the whole the whole movie, which was actually shot in Alberta, um, but is supposed to be the Texas Panhandle, um, we're just outside for almost almost all of it. There's sort of one or two interiors before in the middle of the film, the Sam Shepard character takes away his new bride and says, Oh, why don't you why don't you hang out in the in the big house, which is this very upright vertical in in contrast to all of the horizontals of the horizon in the film, little box on this plane. Um and and Gear walks inside and and it's as though furnishings are from Mars. Like just the idea of a couch is so alien and, you know, watching it from you know, my couch that I dialed up from CB2 or whatever, um, just thinking about the kind of roughness of, of the landscape. I just loved that scene when Malik's 
camera, which had been so often turned on herons and wind-tossed wheat and rippling troughs and steely-eyed bison. It's just like, check out that decanter. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I want that house and everything in it. I think it's worth mentioning that that house, which is so... It has this remarkable shape, right? It looks like something out of a painting. It's a very painterly movie in general, but that... It looks like Christina's world. Yeah, the, like the a Wyeth painting, painting, which I'm sure yeah. was one of the visual influences. But that house was built entirely for the movie. When I was watching, I was thinking, where did they, they find such a... In perfect condition, right? This this old wood-framed house. And in fact, that house was built from top to toe by Jack Fisk, the production designer, who's another kind of legendary figure in movies and has collaborated with Malick throughout his career. So again, there's that deliberateness, right? I mean, the decanter and the velvet couch were very carefully chosen and or built to create exactly that feeling in that moment. Another thing I love about this movie is that, you know, it's the late 1970s where movie directors were given blank checks in order to write socially introspective you know in order to make socially introspective movies about america it just it's such a anachronism really to think about it and this movie's politics are i think julia as you say they're sort of about this contrast between the people out in the field doing the work and this you know indoor space of bourgeois refinery and who gets to be inside who never gets to come inside but there are all these shots that are you know uh the, the shots of nature are like a wyeth painting or the house and you know, wheat fields are like a Wyeth painting, but the shots of the faces are like um, uh, Walker Percy almost, right? It's, it's sort of these, the movie seems to be saying these are our ancestors, right? These are the circumstances out of which many of our ancestors, American ancestors arose. Yeah, Steve, that's very true. And you see it in the, the credit sequence very clearly, that idea of, of the, the film being this kind of fictional genealogy of, of America, because the opening credits with the beautiful, beautiful Ennio Morricone theme um, that as soon as you hear this movie, you will forever associate with it, um, show these images that may actually be old photographs by Jacob Reese or something like that, photographs of you know people in the inner city and children in tenements around the turn of the century. I'm not sure what's, whether some of those are original and, or some of them were you know created to look old, but the very last one you see, the last image, is not just a generic face that seems historic, but Linda Manns, the girl who will wind up being our narrator and in a way the, the the movie's protagonist right and so there's this this moment when history kind of converges on this one person who will be the voice that guides us and i love the way that the credit sequence in this movie becomes part of the story i mean one thing i love about the movie is that it, it does not feel like it's moralizing like the story of you know couple seeking security, migrant couple seeking security in America pulls a con on a sick rich farmer and gets their comeuppance could um, could feel pedantic, but it really doesn't. I think because of Gear's performance, because of Shepard's performance, because of Adams's performance, like the the encounters there seem much more complicated and less simplistic than that. And then I think, I, I don't feel that the film or that Malik is judging Brooke Adams for enjoying life as the lady of the house. And Not at all. I wearing agree. nice things and, and returning to her dreams of being a dancer and, and learning some dance steps on the porch. At, at, you know, like the movie does not condemn her. She's not, um, she's not seen as less for having, enjoying her escape from incredibly difficult toil. Um, but it it is capacious enough to allow 
for for both. I mean, and 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 this is a bit spoilery, but in in the final scenes of the film, I'll try to say this without spoiling too much. But she she believes that a certain kind of domesticity that that leaves room for art and dance is is the happiest possible resting place to find. Um, but the Linda Mann's character disagrees and thinks the kind of adventure and uncertainty and exploration is the is what home is for her as a as an American girl um and I just love that the movie seems so non-judgmental about those twin threads yeah I mean to 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 take to pull out the perspective even further it's one of those films that manages to be about this particular story the love triangle the con you know what's going to happen with these four people who are almost the only people that we really get to know or see speak in the movie but because, as you say, Julia, it's, the, the camera is always turning away to contemplate rippling wheat or, you know, huge skies over fake Texas, actually, Alberta, Canada, and, and to, to look at nature, the nature surrounding them in this, on this vast scale, it, it, it feels, as Steve said, as, it's about, as if it's about history as well. And it achieves all of that with, with so little. I think that something that was discussed in the, the pre-production conversations with the cinematographer and other crew members was that this should be filmed like a silent film, which for Malik meant in part that it would use almost all natural light, which it does to an extraordinary degree. Another part of the reason it went so far over budget is that they always wanted to shoot during magic hour, right? During this little period, the cinematographer said it was 20 minutes a day or so, you know, that the light was just golden, but, you know, not, not dark yet. Um, the only other thing I would mention, and it's only because she passed so recently, is that Linda Manns in this movie is just a complete revelation, and it would not have been remotely the same movie without her. I mean, even to the degree that I think she made up and, and riffed a lot of the things that she's saying, that crazy clip we heard about a guy named Ding Dong who told her that, you know, heaven and hell would be bursting and people bursting into flames that whole thing was essentially stream of consciousness that she said into a microphone in post-production when Terrence Malick brought her in and said you know do your Linda Mann's thing and uh, there are some beautiful pieces written about her since her death where you can learn a little bit about her but she was a very unusual outlier figure who you know did not at all uh, fit into the Hollywood mode or audition for this in any sort of normal way. She was really sort of a find of Terrence Malick's and the two of them really created that voiceover together. It's quite extraordinary. Hmm. All right. Well, the movie is Days of Heaven. We all really enjoyed uh, watching or rewatching it. Check it out. It's streaming various places. Let us know what you thought. All right, moving on. All right. Now's the moment in the podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, in keeping with our all movie theme, I want to endorse something that has to do with one of the movies that we talked about. So Alex Winter, the co-star with Keanu Reeves of the Bill and Ted trilogy, uh, has spent most of the intervening years since the first Bill and Ted movies being a director rather than an actor. He's acted some, but mainly he's directed a lot of TV, some documentaries. He's stayed on on that side of the camera. And he just happens to have a new documentary that came out just recently, pretty shortly before the Bill and Ted 3 movie that has has to do with his own career in a way, and, and even Keanu's. It's called Showbiz Kids, and it's about the history of child performers on film uh, in which he sits down. He himself a former child performer. Actually, I thought of this, Steve, when you said during our Bill and Ted segment that they were both green when the first movie came out, which, especially for Alex Winter, was not true at all. They had both been child actors. I mean, Keanu more like a teen actor. You know, I think he'd been acting since maybe 14, 16 years old. 
but Alex Winter had been acting since he was eight. So, um, so he got interested as a filmmaker in, um, in this, this question of what it is to be a Hollywood child actor and what your future is like and interviews a whole bunch of, of well-known uh, former juvenile stars, including Diana Sari Carey, um, who was baby Peggy of silent film fame and who just just died, I believe, earlier this year. Um, but he got some of the last interviews with her. She's a huge personality and really fun to listen to. But so are many other stories in this documentary. So it's on HBO. It's called Showbiz Kids, directed by Alex Winter. And uh, it's really, really worth watching. Oh, cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I also have a film to round out our very film-centric show. Um, it is worth watching the romantic comedy Plus One, which came out in a proper theatrical release in 2019, a pretty teeny tiny indie that um, premiered at Tribeca last year. Uh, it stars Maya Erskine, who's uh, one of the stars of Pen15, um, and Jack Quaid, who is the son of Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid, as uh, lovelorn people in in the wedding season of their lives who agree to be each other's plus ones for a year of wedding going. You will never guess what happens to them. Um, but Maya Erskine's performance in particular is just completely stunning. And the movie is, like, solid. Like, I'm not going to tell you it's the best romantic comedy you've ever seen or that it does anything particularly wild with the form. But it's just a good time. And the thing I loved most about it is that a recurring gambit in the film, which takes place mostly at weddings, is that each new wedding is opened with a toast. Um, and the way the toasts are written is just so I, – I know, Dana, you spoiled Palm Springs and I saw it too. Like there are there are toasts in movies – and Palm Springs is a movie where you return to a toast in the movie several times because of the plot of the movie um, that feel like they're sort of about the couple, but they're enforcing the themes of the movie. Like they feel like pieces of screenwriting. The toasts and the performances of the toasts in this film really feel like awkward documentaries excised from actual weddings you've been to. And uh, they're great. Mm. All right. I, this week I'm going to just endorse, I hate to bring down the room, but I just want to endorse two, I think, sadly opposite essays on fascism. The first is, they're both in the New York Review of Books. One is recent. It's by Sarah Churchwell, who's an American lit professor in London. It's called American Fascism. It has happened here. And it's just a salutary reminder that, in fact, we have a long history of flirting with far-right politics in this country in ways that are very dark, very uh, violent. And that the idea that Trump is somehow sui generis or came out of nowhere or is a total surprise or somehow doesn't have roots in something essentially American is just completely ahistorical and false. And she argues that, uh, I think, quite elegantly. And the second, which I may have mentioned on the show before, is a 1995 essay by Umberto Eco, famous, of course, for the novel The Name of the Rose. But he wrote an essay called Ur-Fascism, U-R-Fascism, which is just it is just the perfect essay. It's autobiographical. It's historically informed. It, uh, you know, essentially what it does is just lay out what the um, essence of fascistic thinking and um, would-be governance are. And there's a 14-point list, and it just is, unfortunately, it's just a timely essay now. And, and, and um, I hate to have to recommend it, but but I do. All right, well, we'll have links to all of that on our show page. Uh, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love it when you do. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.